of their own volition to follow Jesus in a less committed way. This week, we're going to look at the first signs of Jesus's divinity and authority that are shown in the Gospels. And of course, we'll be using readings by Alexander Scorby, starting with in John 2. Chapter 2. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Okay. <clears throat> so my first question for you in verse 6. Anybody know what a firkin is? It's a small stuffed animal, right? A firkin. A firkin. You know, we, do, do you, does anyone ever buy milk by the firkin? No. Any guesses what a firkin might be? Yeah, not at all. But I, I like that. Um, it's no worse than my stuffed animal bit. So a firkin is a, a unit of liquid measure. It's in the vicinity of maybe 10 gallons. So these purifying pots held 20 to 30 gallons. They were substantial. And the idea is that you would get water out of them to wash your hands. Remember how... Uh, neurotic the Pharisees were about, about cleansing their hands before eating. So these six purifying jars would have been there, and we'll, we'll go through the story as we continue. But, you know, Firkin, it's a good place to start. Jesus and his first disciples, that would, but it would have been Andrew, Nathaniel, Simon, John, and Philip, were at the wedding in Cana with Mary. Now, People think this may have been a close family friend or a relative of Mary's because when they run out of wine, she's worried about the shame of it because you don't run out of wine. It just, that's, that's a major, uh, major misstep. Uh, it, it's shame on the family. But Mary comes to Jesus and says, well, they've run out of wine. What are you going to do about it? But when he's asked, Jesus demurs. He says, you know, it's not time for my public revelation, not time for his public debut. And anyway, he's not here to perform tricks. It's, he's working inside his father's will, inside his father's plan. And his father's plan calls for his public debut to be maybe a week away. 
But he chooses to help this family in a small, private, uncredited way. The, this miracle that Jesus does, nobody notices, except for certain servants who followed his directions and Jesus' disciples who saw the transformation of the water to the wine. And what the, the passage notes is the disciples believed. So this was in many ways a small demonstration, really just for his disciples. Now, throughout his gospel, John, in talking about miracles, uses the word samion in the Greek, which means a sign or a portent, versus dunamis, which is used elsewhere in the other three gospels, um, which is a power or an ability. So the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, They tend to focus on the things Jesus did to varying degrees. John focuses less on what Jesus did, but what the meaning behind what Jesus did was. The fact that these signs showed him to be the Son of God. So he uses sign or portent versus power or divine ability. Different word. And uh, so what's not important... What is important is not the miracle turning 150 gallons of water into wine. They were drinking that wine for a couple days afterward, I'm thinking. But what the miracle reveals. Now also significantly in verse 11, John says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus. In other words, before this, Jesus did no miracles. Now that's important when we compare it to some other, let me use the word literature that's out there. Various non-biblical texts say Jesus did miracles as a boy. The Quran claims that he spoke from the cradle to protect Mary from danger. And that he created a living bird from clay and killed a clumsy boy who bumped into him. That's an interesting picture of the boy Jesus. The pseudo-gospel of Thomas, which is one of those garbage gospels out there that claims to be a gospel but very clearly isn't, says that as a boy he redirected a stream by speaking to it, and when another boy then disrupted that stream, he cursed him and the boy shriveled up like a dead tree and died. Verse 11 clearly shows these to be false accounts. He never acted selfishly, not as a boy, not as a man. He was always living within God's will. Next passage in John, please. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, 
His disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So after a few days, Jesus and his disciples went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember, they're living up in Galilee. They have to travel down to Jerusalem. Although when the Bible talks about Jerusalem, you don't travel down to Jerusalem. You always travel up to Jerusalem. Now, when I think about it, uh, modern usage, if you go south, you're probably going down. We, we, we talk about that. You, you drive down when you're going south. You drive up when you're going north. You drive over when you're going east or west. To the Jews, you always went up to Jerusalem, in part because Jerusalem was on, effectively, a small mountain. And also, spiritually, it was the center, so you always went up to Jerusalem. You'll see that in the Bible. No one ever goes down to Jerusalem. They go down away from Jerusalem. But Jesus and his disciples went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in the temple, and remember, this is Herod's temple. It is a huge building built by Herod the Great to bribe the Jews. Um, Herod, remember, was an Edomian, an Edomish man, a man of Edom, a descendant of Esau. He had come to the throne in a very sneaky way. Uh, in the end, by bribing the Romans, who put him in charge, he was hated by Israel. And he was a tyrant. Um, and he was not a nice guy. And he had built this temple to try to get in better with the Jews. Maybe they'll like me more if I build them this big, grandiose temple. And in size, it was actually bigger than the Temple of Solomon. It was not as well appointed, but it was enormous. Have you guys seen pictures of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? It's it's not a small wall, right? That's one segment of the foundation. The foundation that Herod built to put the temple on top of. One small part. It was an enormous temple. And when Jesus and his disciples get there, what Jesus sees is inside the temple, there are people who are selling animals, oxen, sheep, and doves. And there are people who are changing money. Do you suppose this is the first time Jesus ever saw that? How many times has he been to the temple? How old is he? About 30 years old. How many times a year did they come to the temple? Minimum of three. Three major feasts. So since at least he was 13, we know he went at 12. That's in the Bible. So for 18 years, he's been going three times a year, 54 times if we do the math. This is the first time he saw the animals and the money changers, right? Of course not. He knew they were there. But what's changed is now he's starting his ministry. And the first thing he does in his public ministry is address something that is wrong. Now, let's walk back. During the Passover, oxen, sheep, and doves would be sacrificed, depending on whether you were rich or poor. The rich rich person would, would, would buy an entire cow. The poorest of people would just be able to afford doves. The dove was sacrificed, the blood was drained out, certain portions of it were roasted, burned on the uh, altar, and the remainder was a feast, quite a big feast in the case of oxen, very, very small feast in the case of doves, 
and eaten there in celebration and thanks to God for what he had done for you in the year before. Also, there was a temple support tax that had to be paid once a year when you came there. Now, animal sellers offered the convenience of an animal purchased right there. You could bring money and purchase the animal versus dragging it from, say, the island of Greece. Sorry, not the island, the island of Crete or somewhere in Greece because Jews came from all over the world here. And even if it was only from Galilee, that's a long way to drive a cow on your way to the feast. It's much easier to bring money in hand and buy it. So, the Jews being humans, a industry developed around this. Similarly, money changers would convert any cash you brought into half shekels. Now, the Jews had an issue here. Money normally shows the head of a king, right? Usually in profile, stamped right there to prove this is the king's money. Well, the half shekel was the only coin of the era that did not have someone's head on it. So to the Jews, paying the temple tax with a coin that had Caesar's face on it was sacrilege. So this was the only one that didn't have the face of Caesar on it. So this was the only coin that was acceptable to give as sacrifice. I mean, as tax. So Lincoln's face, Washington's face. I got a couple more ones here. You can see how well my wife treats me. Um, so these have a, a secular person's face on them, so we can't give this in offering, right? That's ridiculous, isn't it? The Jews were all about meaningless rules. So you could only give a half shekel for your tax. You couldn't give its equivalent in any other money. Now, the basis of this is biblical. If you look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 15, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. And that money was used to provide for the temple and it did two things. Um, a portion of it paid for the public sacrifices. And the other portion of it paid for kind of preparation, sprucing up the city so it would be pretty when people came by and looked at Jerusalem three times a year. And I have no issue with the collection. I don't think there's any reason. We, it's appropriate to support God's work. Now, we don't have a set amount. We give what we choose to give, and that's appropriate. But they had to give this specific coin. Now remember, God had warned Joshua that they couldn't number the Jews for war. You couldn't take a census of the Jews because if you count how many warriors you have, you're not relying on God, you're relying on your own strength. Well, David broke that commandment and a plague came upon Israel as a result. So the first century Jews were very, very careful not to count the people. So instead they counted the coins that each person had to give. You knew exactly how many people gave coins, and every person had to give a coin. So all you have to do is count the coins, and that's how many people there are. The amount of just ridiculous rules is beyond rational belief. This is where legalism gets you. It's a silly place. But 
if everyone has to give a half shekel, well, many of them lived in places where you couldn't get your hands on a half shekel. So they come to the temple and they change their money into a half shekel because only the half shekel can be put in the box. Well, I'm sure the money traders uh, might have charged a convenience fee because people are people. But I don't think Jesus had a problem with the animal sellers or the money changers making a profit. On the other hand, the issue was where they were. The animal sellers and the money changer, changers were inside the temple. What's the purpose of the temple? To glorify God. And the quickest way, the temple was set aside for worship of God. If you're going to do merchant activities, if you're going to have a little flea market, if you're going to have a pet store crossed with a bank inside the temple of God, is that as bad as an idol? Arguably, you're putting this stuff ahead of God, ahead of this area which should have been sanctified. Now, who should have fixed this? Whose job was it to ensure the sanctity of the temple? The Levites, the priests, some of which were Pharisees. Not too many of the priests, but the Levites were often Pharisees. Yeah, there were religious authorities who had the job of maintaining the sanctity of the temple. But I guarantee you, if there were merchants in there, they were getting a cut. So instead of preserving the sanctity of the temple, these guys were running a concession. And I got no issue with capitalism. I like getting my paycheck. But there are certain places where it's not appropriate. And this was inappropriate. So Jesus' action in clearing the temple, it was deliberate. He sat there and put together a whip, a scourge of cords. He built it on the spot. He didn't bring it with him. He didn't grab whatever was at hand. He just sat there and deliberately made a scourge. It was not impulsive. It was active and not passive disapproval. He didn't say, oh, that's terrible, and just let it go. He did something about it. It was zealous. He took pretty serious action, but it wasn't vicious. How many people did he whip, according to the Bible? Zero. Well, if you're going to make a scourge, why not beat people with it? It's a symbol of authority. And if he had any idea how to use it, he could probably get a bit of a crack out of it, and that helps move the animals along. But he didn't make the scourge to beat people with. His purpose is to quickly make business impossible, not to ruin or to injure. He overturns the tables, he dumps out the money, he chases out the animals. Doesn't even say he chased out the people. But he made the doing of business not practical. And he based his action on his position as the Son of God and the temple as his Father's house. The first thing Jesus did in his public ministry was to clean house at the temple. And a lot of Jesus' ministry was about cleaning house figuratively as well as literally. But the first thing he does is he steps up and he does what the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees should have done 50 years at least ago. So the Jews, those in authority, likely Sadducee priests and Pharisee scribes, they want a sign as proof of his authority. Who are you 
You look to me like a carpenter or some other low-life laborer. Who are you to take this authority on yourself and clear out the people who are paying us to do their business here? Now, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22, God gives a standard for judging a prophet. He says, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. This was a a test to tell a true prophet from a false prophet. And as we studied the Old Testament, we know that Israel was full, during the period of the kings in particular, of false prophets. Guys who claimed to speak for God, and buttered up the kings when God was sending true prophets to kick the king's butt figuratively up and down the block because of everything they were doing wrong. So God said, if they say this is going to happen, if they do a prophecy and the prophecy doesn't come true, they're fakes. My prophets will say something's going to happen, and it'll happen. Now, the problem is the Jews had kind of turned this around. Rather than listening for a prophecy and checking to see if it was done, they got into the face of every prophet and said, give us a sign. Not, we'll wait for God to show us a sign, but demanding a sign. It's a little bit different, isn't it? I was talking to my wife yesterday and noting that if I'm waiting in kind of a crowd where there's no clear line to find, I'll often let people go in front of me. I was, at, I was coming home from Chicago, and uh, if you've ever been in O'Hare Airport, getting to the train that takes you out to rental cars is it's a marathon. But there's a couple bunch of places where you have to go up and down escalators, and they're single-file escalators. So everyone gets off the train, and a huge mob of people heads toward the escalators, and everybody wants to get on the escalator. Well, some of us set a step aside, and we let a family go through, and then maybe we'll go after them. So I have no issue with letting someone go in front of me. On the other hand, if I'm on the highway, and I'm in line to make a left-hand turn onto the freeway, and someone cuts in front of me, I get furious. Because in one case, I've chosen to let them go first, and in the other case, they've chosen to go in front of me. They've taken my will out of the picture. Now, I'm not comparing myself to to God in any way, shape, or form, but it's one thing for God to offer a sign. It's a whole other thing for the Jews to demand a sign. Where's the respect for God? It's not there. God never intended for them to use Deuteronomy 18.22 to demand a sign. And here they are getting in Jesus' face and going, What sign do you give us to back up your authority to clean up the mess that we should have cleaned up a while ago? We want a sign. Now, Jesus is not playing their game. He's not looking for their approval. He responds with what the Bible calls a dark saying, something whose meaning is not obvious on the face of it. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's referring to this temple. But he says it while standing in this temple. And the Pharisees quite reasonably misunderstand. And they say, 46 years We're spent building this temple, 
and it ain't done yet. And you're going to put it up in three days? Well, you know, you look like a carpenter. Still, that's pretty good work. Now, honestly, this was Jesus' intention. It was a dark saying. He was not there to explain himself. In the big picture, did the Pharisees have the right to demand a sign of Jesus? No. And Jesus very subtly puts them in their place. Not overtly, he just gives them a non-useful answer. A dark saying. He answers their question. And if they chose to remember that, in his resurrection three years later, was absolute proof of who he was. But that's the sign he gave them, not the sign they demanded. Very important distinction, right? And that dark saying was for his disciples' edification, because they were there with him. And they remembered. After he rose from the dead at the end of his ministry, God reminded them. Remember what he said way back at the beginning? And they went, oh. We have the advantage of being able to read it all at once. Now, in Matthew, there's a second account of this cleansing we'd like to look at. Go ahead, please. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them, and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. You know, that account, now I know there's some variation in stories between John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, because each saw the same events from different perspectives. But generally, when you compare them, you can put them into a common thread that makes sense. But this account seems very different. And there are those who will point it up and go, well, the, the, the scripture is inconsistent. In one, we have Jesus saying, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And in the other, he says something completely different. And there's other activities that are recorded. And well, there's a very good reason for this. He cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of ministry, and once at the end. And this, in Matthew 21, is at the end of his ministry. So be careful, be cautious, be informed. When the ignorant come to challenge the Bible before you, don't let them get away with silly things like assuming two events are the same event. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first cleansing of the temple is not recorded. Only in John. Do you remember earlier in the lesson when we talked about which five disciples were there with Jesus, who they were? 
Anyone? Any five names? And Eric is right out. Andrew was one. Nathaniel, John. Peter, a.k.a. Simon. One other. Philip. Of those five, which of those five wrote the epistle of Matthew? None of them. Which one wrote Mark? None of them. And which one wrote Luke? None of them. The only apostle who was there was John. So it's no surprise that it appears in his epistle and not in the others. That makes sense? Now, arguably, Peter was there. And Peter is, the, in many ways, the author of the Gospel of Mark. But apparently Peter didn't choose to include it. But Mark, focusing on Jesus as the Son of God, very reasonably bookends his public ministry of Jesus with the two events concerned with the temple. And the necessity of keeping the temple the way it's supposed to be and clearing out stuff. So the synoptic, and you know, this is interesting for me, You guys have heard the term synoptic gospels, right? Everybody banters. Okay. The synoptic gospels are the three that aren't aren't John. Because they're very close together in their accounts. And a lot of people consider that Matthew probably took, may have taken extensive notes while he was an apostle because he's one of the few that wasn't illiterate. So he wrote a lot of stuff down. Chances are, they argue. And then a lot of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, may have used Matthew as a reference. He came out earlier than the other two Gospels. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean Mark and Luke were cribbing, but they may have used it as a guide. This is one reason given why the synoptic Gospels are so close together. There's a simpler reason. God was the author of all three. But synoptic is just a word I've always accepted. But if you stop and think about it for a moment, it's Greek. Sin, together, optic, seeing. Synoptic just means they all have the same viewpoint to some extent, which is not really true. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very different viewpoints. One written to the Jews, one focused on the actions of Jesus, and one written to Gentiles. But the events that are related are very similar. But none of those Gospels contain the first cleansing. But the point here, and I do have a point, (laughs) don't let people who are criticizing the Bible, mishmash two events that happened at two different times, three years apart, into the same event, and then say, well, there's inconsistency here. So, I want to spend the last ten minutes of this lesson talking about anger and how anger is not anger. Jesus' actions at the temple pretty clearly show that he was angry. I pause and wait to hear the gasp of disbelief. Wow, it was a pretty quiet gasp. So he was human, yes? As a human, he was subject to the same emotions we are. He was happy, sad, disappointed, satisfied, surprised. Why not angry? But so many of us look at anger as a negative emotion. Jealousy, a negative emotion. Anger is not inherently sinful. Matter of fact, God the Father is recorded as being angry. In a number of places in the Bible, let's look at 1 Kings, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. God the Father is angry at his king Solomon. 
Was it a sinful anger? It couldn't be. God is God. God does not sin. Right? So, at least in this case, it was not sinful anger. So the possibility of non-sinful anger exists. But anger, as I said, has a lot of negative connotations. We think of anger as a negative emotion. If we look at a dictionary uh, definition, a strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a wrong. Anger, the secular psychologist, psychiatrist will tell us, is that we get angry when we feel threatened. Whether physically, somebody's taking our stuff or threatening to hurt us, or emotionally, someone is verbally abusing us. Angry, anger is a defense mechanism, we're told. And I have to agree with them. But this emotion of anger can lead to sinful thoughts and actions. There's also anger from a threat to what we believe. If, so, if you see someone spitting on a United States flag, some of us will have a strong reaction to that. But anger can be both righteous or unrighteous. Now, whether anger is righteous or unrighteous depends greatly on the actions we take under its influence. If anger causes us to do sinful things, killing people, would be a rather extreme example. Um, punching someone in the face who dearly deserves it, probably still sinful. <laughs> um, if it leads to sinful acts or sinful thoughts, it's sinful anger. Now, God's anger reflects his character. It is restrained and patient, but adamant. I'm going to use, I, I spent a long time looking for the right word there, adamant. Do you guys know what adamant is? It was not a pop singer in the early 80s. That was Adam Ant. We're not talking about him. Adamant. Anybody? Insistent. Pardon? Insistent. Close. Determined. Close. It's actually a description of something's properties. Something adamant cannot be broken. Like a wall made of uh, a, a bank vault. A bank vault is intended to be adamant. You go up there with a sledgehammer and beat on it, and it goes, yeah, and? Okay, obdurate would be another word, but that's even a bigger, less, more obscure word. Adamant is hard, unmoving. And the Lord's anger is restrained. He doesn't do what he could in most cases. I mean, frankly, given that we are sinful beings, every time we anger the Lord, he could Sodom and Gomorrah us. Boom! God chooses not to. He's patient, long-suffering. When Solomon angered the Lord, boom! Did not occur. Regardless of the fact that Samuel had earned, boom! In Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2a, and I just put a because b ran off the end of the slide and didn't, wasn't really entirely pertinent. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. This is what I'm talking about. Restrained, patient, but adamant. There is a line. And God doesn't move that line. There is a line. 
Now, it's possible for us to be righteously angry using God's anger as a model. To be righteously angry, first of all, we need to be defending non-sinful things. Okay? If we, if I, had a relationship outside marriage, and a fellow brother came to me and talked to me about it, and I got angry about it, Would that be righteous anger? Well, no, because first of all, I was doing a sinful thing. He came to me as the Bible tells him to, and I got angry because he was threatening my sinful life. There's nothing righteous about that. On the other hand, if a U.S. senator gets angry because a law promoting abortion is coming through, might that be righteous anger? Because what is being proposed is itself sinful. It's crossing a line that God has established. It would be appropriate for him to get angry, but inappropriate for him to shoot the person proposing the law. Bang. Gets the job done, but you've just crossed the line into sinfulness. So to be righteously angry, we need to be defending non-sinful things and doing it in a non-sinful way way. My children have provoked me to anger many, many times. It has not always been a righteous anger. Because <laughs> it always hasn't always been ended up in the place I wanted it to. I was looking back on my actions, I was not happy. But it's not just Old Testament. In Ephesians, Paul says, talking about how the life Christians should lead. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are in members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Anger is a human emotion. It is part of the way God created us. I do not for one second believe anger is the product of the fall. Because God can be angry and God has no sin. So he created anger within us. It is our sin nature that takes anger and twists it to evil. But Paul told us, be angry and yet sin not. Because he recognizes that under the influence of strong emotion, the Satan's going to come knocking. How can I make your day worse? And it's very easy for us to fall into that trap. We need to temper justice with mercy. What is right with the reality that we've been forgiven and we need to forgive others. So going back to the specific example of this week of Jesus getting righteously angry at the misuse of the temple. And degrading the temple is one of the best, that is the worst, ways to attract God's wrath. Okay? The one king... In the history of Judah, who God finally said, that's it, I'm cutting you off. You are no longer in the line of the Messiah. What is it that he did? He set up idols inside the temple. Everything else that all the kings of Judah did, as wrong as it was, God continued to put up with. Until someone, one king took an, a defeated enemy idol and set it up to be worshipped in God's temple. And God said, that's it. That was the line. You done crossed it. Similarly here, 
Jesus is starting his ministry by putting things in order, clearing out from the temple that which does not belong. But his response showed both restraint and deliberation, a merciful implementation. He did what he needed to do, but he didn't beat people. Doesn't even record that he chased people out of the temple. He just made it impossible for them to continue what was a sinful practice in the temple and an unchanging standard. If we want a basis, and good luck remembering this while you're angry. This is why we hide God's word in our heart. Nahum chapter 1 verse uh, 2 is not a bad one. So that when you're angry, God goes, excuse me. Remember what we said? Calmly. Brother, come on up. Oh, actually, as you're coming up. Application. Two of them. Does the fact that Jesus chased the money changers and animal sellers out of the temple mean that we should not allow the sale of anything on Sunday or in the church building? That's actually a tougher question than you might think. What do you think? Okay, so if Brother Lester is making available for sale his books in the back, and I'm not picking on Brother Lester, but that's the most recent example I can come up with, where do we stand on that? Now, I'm not taking a stand. I'm not asking you to take you a stand. I'm calling for discussion. What do you think? I get that, that frown and that nodding head. Can we verbal? Oh, I'm so sorry. Go for it. Agreed. So, so should we sell Bibles to support the ministry of the church? Okay. I have no issue with that statement. And it, it's a gray area. You have to decide what you believe. And certainly motive and the impression it leaves is very important. But I don't think that's the point of this story. Keep going, brother. The, oh, uh, are we going to bring the Catholics into it, brother? Catholics, now, I, uh, I'll, I'll respect them on this point. They do sell stuff, but not in the... Well, that would be, that would be uh, silly, wouldn't it? But they have it out there, they got Yeah, the, the Catholic Church in the town I grew up in supported themselves with a carnival every year. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the Baptist Church didn't. Yeah, the Bible bookstore... Yeah, you got to worry about that one. It's no longer the Baptist Bible Bookstore. It's, it's Lifeway now. And I think it's thankfully completely separated from any church. But that, that's certainly a point. Brother. Uh, I don't think this is a, is a knee-jerk uh, question to answer right now. I think it's more of a round table. But first of all, the person that has the books back there is not here to defend them. Brother, I'm not attacking Lester in any way, shape. That's not my intention. Okay, now you're right. Brother? The workman is worthy of his hire. True statement. So we have, um, I think, a a case where there is a reasonable remuneration for the work that a man of God does versus uh, something.
other purposes? I, I, I think that there's, there isn't a real black and white on that, brother. Well, actually, and I'm, I'm, I expected someone to bring this up. That's not the point of this story. If we turn this story into a discussion as to whether or not it's appropriate to sell stuff in church, we've missed the concept. Because they they weren't selling anything to honor God. They were engaged in pursuit of profit. The, the, The idol of mammon. The, 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 love, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. The point of the story was not whether or not selling religious, excuse me, that's a horrible word, God-honoring stuff in church is right or wrong. This wasn't God-honoring stuff. This was God-adjacent at best. So don't get tangled up in a very legalistic interpretation of this story. I think we started at the beginning talking about why legalism is going to get you down to a silly place where you can't count people, but you can count the coins they give. I mean, there are few better examples in my mind of the silliness of legalism than that. But a more significant question, do you tend to lean toward avoiding confrontation over sin and not even getting angry at sin, or do you tend to get angry and lash out in a sinful way How can you seek to find a balance between these responses and glorify God in your actions? This is the real question around this lesson. Because there's a middle ground, which I think Jesus demonstrated. And then there's one extreme over here, where we're milquetoasts and never do anything to confront anybody because we're desperately worried about appearing other than saintly. And then there's the other extreme over here, where we bomb abortion clinics. Neither extreme is right. I know which side of the two I tend to slide toward. That's a personal problem. Haven't bombed any clinics lately. What do you guys think? How do we find that balance point? Please. Certainly. Absolutely. But how do we find it in a practical way? How do we apply that? What do you think, brother? Can I pick on you? 